The Parable of Ten Minutes. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable. Because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a noble man went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom, and then returned. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minutes, and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him, and sent a delegation after him, saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to, to be called to him, that he might know what, had, what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten more minutes. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in very little. You shall receive authority over ten days. The second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are over to be five days. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you were a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that... I was a severe man, talking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then, why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might, have I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, Take the minute from him and give it to the one who has ten minutes. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minutes. I tell you, that to everyone who has more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he, what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Luke chapter 19, verse 11, 27. Well, good morning and thank you all for being here today. Great to have you with us. Welcome also to those of you joining us online. We are delighted to have you with us at River Oaks this morning. Before we get into the message, I want to share just a few thoughts about revival. A moment ago when Bella prayed after our worship time, she was praying for a, a work of the Holy Spirit amongst his people. It's sometimes referred to as revival, and the word revival has been in the news quite a bit the last week or two because of events happening at Asbury University in Wilmore, Kentucky. What's happening there, uh, I don't know whether it would properly be termed revival or, or perhaps just a special, beautiful, unique work of the Holy Spirit. And if you've not read about this, uh, the campus there uh, was having a, the students were having a chapel service on February 8th, and there seemed to be such a beautiful and unique working of the Holy Spirit there. Students began confessing sin. More students began coming. The chapel of 1,500 people became full, and it has continued until this hour since that time. And understand that this has been happening at some other campuses around the country as well. What I want to say uh, this morning is, first of all, that this is not new. God has worked this way, particularly amongst the young over the years. 
it's something that I have been praying for a long time, and many of you have as well, would happen here, particularly amongst our students. Jonathan Edwards is known as one of America's great theologians and historians of revival. He lived during the First Great Awakening in the 1700s, and he wrote these words about these unique movings of the Holy Spirit that we sometimes call revival. He said, Indeed, it has commonly been so when God has begun any great work for the revival of his church, he has taken the young people. And I'll go ahead and read the rest of his sentence with some reluctance. He's taken the young people and has cast off the old and stiff-necked generation. Well, as one who's closer to the old generation, I suspect Jonathan Edwards wrote that when he was very young. But it does it seem to be the case, looking at the history of the Christian church, the growth of the church is not a straight line like this, but peaks and valleys, times of, of spiritual decline, the outpouring of God's Spirit and spiritual growth. We see this through the history of Israel in the Old Testament. We see it in the history of the church in the New Testament. But throughout the history of this country, the United States, there have been a number of periods when college campuses in particular have experienced unique movements of the Holy Spirit. One of the greatest works of the Holy Spirit done in the United States was done in 19, uh, 1857 and 58 beginning with a prayer meeting in New York City begun by a, a businessman named Jeremiah Lamphere. Began praying at the noon hour, and before long, others joined him until tens of thousands of people were praying at the noon hour. And this so-called layman's prayer revival spread throughout the country, and uh, an authority on campus revivals, Timothy Boger, in his book, Accounts of a Campus Revival, writes that several colleges experienced revival during these years, including Oberlin, Yale, Dartmouth, Middlebury, Princeton, Williams, the University of North Carolina, Wake Forest, and others. He notes a newspaper article produced during that time uh, reading that one of the most precious features of the 1857-58 awakening was the impact on the colleges with revival having occurred on most campuses in the nation. Fascinating little book, Accounts of a Campus Revival by a, a highly regarded author, Timothy Boger. My church history professor in seminary, a man named Garth Rosell, was a uh, really an authority on the history of spiritual awakening and revival. And he said this, three things, prayer, particularly united believing prayer, believers praying together, prayer, obedience to scripture, and true repentance. These three things, prayer, obedience to scripture, and true repentance, have been a central part of every spiritual awakening throughout Christian history. And it is likely that this will continue to be true in every future revival until the glorious return of Christ at the end of human history. And so this morning, before we get into the message, I'd like to pray and ask you to join me in prayer and ask you to continue to pray throughout the week that God would pour out His Spirit here. We are located next door to one of the largest high schools, perhaps the largest in Forsyth County, 
And our middle schoolers, our high schoolers, our children, and our students are living in a time when they particularly need the presence, the power, the strength, and the help of the Holy Spirit. So would you join me as we pray? Father, we come in the mighty name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We read in Scripture how you pour out your Spirit on your people. We read in Scripture that apart from you, we can do nothing. We read in Scripture, Lord, that unless you build the house, we labor in vain. So we pray for the greater work of the Holy Spirit that we have read about, that we have heard about, that we need, Lord, in order to faithfully walk with you in this world. We particularly pray for the next generation, young women, young men, that you would pour out your Spirit upon them, and Lord, use our church, use us, Remove in us that which would resist the work of your Holy Spirit. Let us not quench your spirit. Let us not grieve your spirit. Let us not resist your spirit, but long for the fullness of your presence and your power, however you would desire, Lord. And we ask this in the great and holy name of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. Amen. Our passage this morning is found in Luke 19, as PV read for us just a moment ago. And it begins with a statement that really introduces uh, the reason for the parable. So I'd like to begin with simply this question, why did Jesus tell this parable of the ten minas? We read in verse 11, as they, as, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem. Jesus was about to enter Jerusalem where he would be arrested, flogged, spit upon, beaten, ultimately crucified, and then raised from the dead. He had told his disciples this was coming, and they wondered if now was the time the kingdom was going to come. God was going to set up his great kingdom on earth through them. They were near Jerusalem, and they supposed that the kingdom was to appear immediately. So, so we have... Now, a purpose for this parable. Jesus told the parable because his disciples thought the kingdom was about to come right away. And the parable teaches that there's a delay between the departure of the king and his return. Jesus' followers expected this to happen very soon, perhaps as soon as they got to Jerusalem. But in the parable that Peavy read a moment ago, the king leaves and returns with a new kingdom after an extended time, a long enough time for the, the servants to take these minas and some of them to make a very large return. So that's the purpose for the parable. Now, who's represented by this nobleman in the parable? We read that a nobleman, Jesus said, went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. One thought about interpreting parables. When we read a parable, we don't always take every part, every component of a parable to represent some reality of God's kingdom. For example, just here in the Gospel of Luke, one chapter prior to this, Luke 18, Jesus tells a parable about an, a, a woman coming before an unjust judge. Well, we wouldn't look at that parable and say, well, that must mean God's an unjust judge. We, we can't take every component of a parable 
and point to some reality in God's kingdom. But in some parables, the similarities are very clear. And I think that's the case in this particular parable that the nobleman is representative of Christ, of the Lord. He's about to go away and he's going to another place eventually to return. And in the meantime, his servants are to be busy about his work, his purposes. Who was represented by the servants? The nobleman called 10 of his servants, gave them 10 minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. I think the servants are representative of those who are associated with the Lord. They would be the disciples of Jesus at that time. Even, I say those associated with the Lord rather than those who are faithfully following with the Lord because there are some associated with the Lord who are not faithfully following. Judas Iscariot was one of those. The servant who hid his uh, minas and didn't invest them is one here. What's represented by the minas? A mina, by the way, that's not a word we, we use. Uh, a, a, a mina is a unit of money equivalent to about 100 days wages for a laborer, uh, roughly four months salary, you could think of. So it's a pretty big chunk of money. And the nobleman, the owner, the master, gave each of the 10 servants one mina. So it was a pretty fair amount of money. And in the parable Jesus is telling, I think they represent what the Lord gives to his people to use for his glory in his absence. It's interesting that in this parable, every servant was given the same amount. Ten servants, ten minas. They were given one mina apiece. There's a very similar parable in uh, Matthew chapter 25. Uh, very closely aligned with this parable here, but in that one, the Lord gives to servants different amounts, varying amounts based on their ability, based on their capacity. And I'm glad we have both these parables because there's some things in life that God gives us to the same degree. For example, we all have the same amount of time, don't we? But there are other things we have in varying degrees, different talents, different abilities, different opportunities, different amounts of money, things like this. So the parable seems to have clear application to Jesus going away and his coming back later. Now, let's try to look a little more closely at the parable itself, break it down a bit and see how it might apply to our lives. First of all, and if it helps you, by the way, those of you who are relatively new to our church, is always on the back of your bulletin if you pick one up or if you, you get your uh, bulletin on your phone, uh, your, your uh, device, uh, there's an outline if it helps you to follow in that with a fill in the blanks. First of all, there's an unknown amount of time between Jesus' ascension and his second coming. And by ascension, I mean after Jesus rose from the grave, he appeared to his followers, and then he ascended back into heaven. There's an unknown amount of time between Jesus' ascension and his second coming. And that, I think, is why Jesus told the parable because his disciples thought the kingdom in all of its fullness was going to appear immediately. Early Christians believed that Jesus' return would happen right away, likely in their lifetimes. Generations since then 
have believed it would happen in their lifetime. But Jesus said no one knows the day or the hour. When Jesus spoke about his return, and he did speak about his return quite a bit, he emphasized two things for those of us who are his followers. Number one, be ready. Number two, get busy. In Matthew 25, Jesus teaches a parable and he ends it with these words, Watch therefore, for you know, <coughs> you know neither <clears throat> the day nor the hour. That is the day or the hour of his return. Watch, be ready, be spiritually alert, live like I could return anytime. Be ready. In the book of Acts chapter 1, we have the record of Jesus appearing to his disciples after he had been raised from the dead. And we read these words in Acts chapter 1. Again, Jesus has already been resurrected from the grave. When they'd come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They thought it was going to happen. The crucifixion, resurrection had happened. They thought the fullness of the kingdom was going to come now. They said, Lord, is it going to happen now? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In other words, get busy. You are not going to know the time. Get out there and be my witnesses. Do what I've called you to do. Take the gospel to all the world. Jesus has said this gospel of the kingdom should be preached in all the world for a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. So be ready, get busy, do the work. Secondly, we see this in the parable. During that time of Jesus' absence, which is now 2,000 years and going, during that time, his servants are called to faithfully use what he's given us for his purposes, and this is what we call stewardship. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. Notice something here. The Lord gave the minas. He was the owner. They belonged to him. Stewardship is using what God has given us. Stewardship is using God resources. God's resources. He gives the minas. Money, yes but also our time, our talent, our influence, our opportunities, our abilities, our education. We're called to take what he has given to us and, in the words of the parable, engage in business till I come. Use what he's given you, your ability, your influence, your opportunity, your time, your money, your spiritual giftedness. Use it in God's business until he returns. Everything we have is given us by God, even the air we breathe. The Apostle Paul said, what do you have that you've not received? Everything, everything. This is a stewardship mindset to recognize that everything we have comes from God. The opportunities, the advantages, the education, the experiences. Stewardship, maybe when you hear the word stewardship, your mind goes back to a, 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 a Sunday in a church, maybe where you grew up when the, the 
pastor or deacons all did a message on tithing and told everybody to give, give, give. It was Stewardship Sunday. And stewardship is more than that. Stewardship is about using our money for the Lord, but it's also about using our time, using our influence. Stewardship is more than just serving or giving. It's actually part of our spiritual formation. If you're growing as a believer to know the Lord better, to love him more, to walk with him, you'll be embracing this idea of stewardship, that what God has given you in life, how he's enabled you through your education, through your ability, through your experience, the time, what God's given you is to be used to give him glory and to give him honor. It's part of our spiritual formation. As we grow in stewardship and in our understanding of it, we grow in likeness to Christ. Thirdly, it is important for stewards to know, and I mean really know, the true character of the Lord. It's an interesting feature of this parable. One of the servants took his one mina and didn't use it at all in the time of the long absence of the nobleman. And when this one gave his report, he said, Lord, here's your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. Let me ask you a question. Was this servant right in his assessment of the character of the one he calls Lord? No. No, we can see in the parable that he's not correct. His trust in these servants to give them each the equivalent of 100 days wages and leave and go into another country shows remarkable trust. His generosity in rewarding those who used the minas was remarkable, surpassing generosity when he returned. The problem with this servant is this servant didn't know the true character of the Lord. To serve God faithfully, we have to know him and love him. It's love for God. It's love for God that is the motive for serving God. It's love for God that is the motive for stewardship. This parable is not about work harder, try harder, do more. It's about Know the Master. Know the Lord. Knowing Him, you will love Him. Loving Him, you will serve Him as a faithful steward. Love is the motive for service. Love is the motive for giving, for serving. Love is the motive for obeying the Lord. Love's the motive for praying, for worshiping, for spreading the gospel. So the message of the parable is Know him. Love him. Love is the motive for stewardship. The gospel of Jesus Christ is all about the love of God for us, God giving his all to us and for us. The Son of God leaving heaven and giving his life, shedding his blood on the cross so that we could be redeemed, reconciled, brought to God. It's about a just God declaring a just payment had been paid by Christ in order to justly forgive us 
and consider us just and righteous in his own eyes, knowing that we love God. Fourth thing we see in the parable is this. Stewards serve the Lord in a world that largely rejects his rule. One of the little side points we don't want to miss in this parable is where Jesus says the citizens of the ruler, of the nobleman, hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we don't want this man to reign over us. It's a reminder of what Jesus said when he told his disciples that the world hated him and would hate them. The world persecuted him and would persecute them. The citizens who hated the nobleman point to the world that would ultimately crucify Christ and even today the many who reject his rule. The point for those of us who serve the Lord, though, is that we are called to be stewards, to use our gifts, our talents, our abilities in the midst of a world that to a very significant degree rejects his rule. In other words, we're called to serve him in a contrary environment, a difficult environment. I mean, your school is not going to give you students extra points for being a great witness for Jesus. Your employer may not reward your devotion to a holy life. It won't always be easy to be a follower of Jesus around friends and family who don't know him. It's kind of like being a financial investor in a turbulent stock market. Stewards use God's gifts in a contrary environment. But yet the faithful stewards who know and love the master Use those gifts and use them well. Number five, we who are Jesus' followers will give an account of our stewardship when he returns. Again, we read these words, or PV read these words for us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you've been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, you're to be over five cities. They had to give an account of their stewardship. There are three truths about stewardship that I think are, are very foundational, very basic. The first one is this. Stewards are not owners. God is the owner. Stewards are much like household managers in the Bible. We, we serve under the Lord's authority. We have a, a, a things delegated to us, given to us, responsibility given to us. We're to use them for His glory. Stewards are not owners. God is the owner. Number two he, God, entrusts us with resources, time, talent, treasure, opportunity to use for a limited time. The years we have on this earth. The Bible says we brought nothing into this world and we'll take nothing out of it either. We use what God has given to us here and now. And then the third foundational principle is this. One day, we will give an accounting for all that is entrusted to us. Stewards give an account to the owner when he returns. Is that going to happen for you and me when Jesus returns? Yes. 
The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive according to what he has done in his body. Now someone may say, well, that judgment sounds like it has to do with our salvation, but if we're Christians, aren't we assured of our salvation? Yes, we are. I would say that emphatically. Our works do not in any way, to any degree, earn our salvation. The Bible says, by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. Jesus Christ in the shedding of his blood, work on the cross, alone secured our salvation. We receive this by the grace of God through faith in him. But what about works? What's Paul talking about when he says to believers that we will all, including himself, appear before the judgment seat of Christ? I think he's talking about the reward God gives to those who faithfully serve him. It's interesting that the Apostle Paul, in the book of 1 Corinthians, writes about this reward. In chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, he says, speaking of the day when Christ returns, he says, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. If the work anyone's built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he'll suffer loss, though he himself will be saved but only as through fire. In chapter 4, 1 Corinthians, he writes these words, Don't pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Apparently, God rewards his servants for the use of their time, talents, treasure for his glory. And then finally in the parable, we see this about the reward God gives for stewardship. The reward for faithful stewardship greatly, greatly surpasses the service given. He says to the first servant who got one mina and had gained ten, he said, well done, because you've been faithful in a very little, just one mina. You're going to have authority over ten cities. Wow. You talk about a reward surpassing the investment to the second one who'd gained five, he said, you're to be over five cities. Remarkable, the generosity of the owner. It's a reminder that you and I can never outgive God. Even a cup of cold water, he says, given in his name and the name of a disciple will be rewarded. It's going to be a, a marvelous thing on that day when Jesus returns. I think we'll find on that day, there, there, were, there are many people who felt they never did much for God. They worked behind the scenes, serving others. And we'll find that God was exceedingly pleased and their reward will be great. Maybe you never thought you did much by serving children behind the scenes. And you may find that that was the greatest work of all. You may find that the work you do at some local ministry, at the jail or prison or Samaritan Inn or Solus Christus, nobody notices, nobody knows about. God sees everything. 
even a cup of cold water, water given in his name. I don't know what eternal reward really entails, but there's some indication in Scripture that it has to do with roles of responsibility in God's future kingdom. But as we come to the end of our look at this parable, I do have one question I'd like to raise by way of personal application, and it is this. Am I faithfully using what God has entrusted to me for his glory? Would you join me as we take a moment just to ponder that? I want to ask you to ponder that question for a moment. Am I faithfully using what God has entrusted to me for his glory, for his honor? Fathers, we ponder this question. Would you show us if there's some way in which our lives need a reorientation so that we would be faithful to you as stewards, faithful as witnesses taking the gospel to the world around us? Speak to us, Lord. Change us in those ways we need to be changed. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen.